Chapter Four, Part Three of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joelle Peebles. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter Four: The Headwaters of the Paraguay. Part Three. The junction of the São Lourenço and the Paraguay is a day's journey above Corumba. From Corumba there is a regular service by shallow steamers to Cayaba at the head of one fork and to São Luis de Caceres at the head of the other. The steamers are not powerful and the voyage to each little city takes a week. There are other forks that are navigable. Above Cayaba and Caceres launches go upstream for several days' journey except during the driest parts of the season. North of this marshy plain lies the highland, the Plan Alto, where the nights are cool and the climate healthy, but I wish emphatically to record my view that these marshy plains, although hot, are also healthy, and moreover the mosquitoes in most places are not in sufficient numbers to be a serious pest, although, of course, there must be nets for protection against them at night. The country is excellently suited for settlement and offers a remarkable field for cattle growing. Moreover, it is a paradise for water birds and for many other kinds of birds and for many mammals. It is literally an ideal place in which a field naturalist could spend six months or a year. It is readily accessible, it offers an almost virgin field for work, and the life would be healthy as well as delightfully attractive. The man should have a steam launch. In it he could with comfort cover all parts of the country, from south of Corumba to north of Cayaba and Caceres. There would have to be a good deal of collecting, although nothing in the nature of butchery should be tolerated. For the region has only been superficially worked, especially as regards mammals. But if the man were only a collector he would leave undone the part of the work best worth doing. The region offers extraordinary opportunities for the study of the life histories of birds, which, because of their size, their beauty, or their habits, are of exceptional interest. All kinds of problems would be worked out. For example, on the morning of the third, as we were ascending the Paraguay, we again and again saw in the trees on the bank big nests of sticks, into and out of which parakeets were flying by the dozen. Some of them had straws or twigs in their bills. In some of the big globular nests we could make out several holes of exit or entrance. Apparently these parakeets were building or remodeling communal nests, but whether they had themselves built these nests or had taken old nests and added to or modified them, we could not tell. There was so much of interest all along the banks that we were continually longing to stop and spend days where we were. Mixed flocks of scores of cormorants and darters covered certain trees, both at sunset and after sunrise. Although there was no deep forest, merely belts or fringes of trees along the river, or in patches back of it, we frequently saw monkeys in this riverine tree fringe, active common monkeys and black howlers of more leisurely gait. We saw caimans and capybaras sitting socially near one another on the sandbanks. At night we heard the calling of large flights of tree ducks. They were now the most common of all the ducks although there were many muscovy ducks also. The evenings were pleasant and not hot. As we sat on the forward deck, there was a waxing moon. The screamers were among the most noticeable birds. 
They were noisy. They perched in the very tops of the trees, not down among the branches, and they were not shy. They should be carefully protected by law, for they readily become tame, and then come familiarly round the houses. From the steamer we now and then saw beautiful orchids in the trees on the river bank. One afternoon we stopped at the home buildings or headquarters of one of the great outlying ranches of the Brazil Land and Cattle Company, the Farquhar Syndicate, under the management of Murdo Mackenzie, than whom we have in the United States no better citizen or more competent cattleman. On this ranch there are some seventy thousand head of stock. We were warmly greeted by McLean, the head of the ranch, and his assistant Ramsey, an old Texan friend. Among the other assistants, all equally cordial, were several Belgians and Frenchmen. The hands were Paraguayans and Brazilians and a few Indians, a hard-bit set, each of whom always goes armed and knows how to use his arms, for there are constant collisions with cattle thieves from across the Bolivian border, and the ranch has to protect itself. These cowhands, vaqueros, were of the type with which we were now familiar, dark-skinned, lean, hard-faced men in slouch hats, worn shirts, trousers, and fringed leather aprons, with heavy spurs on their bare feet. They are wonderful riders and ropers, and fear neither man nor beast. I noticed one Indian vaquero standing in exactly the attitude of a shelluck of the White Nile, with the sole of one foot against the other leg above the knee. This is a region with extraordinary possibilities of cattle raising. At this ranch there was a tannery, a slaughterhouse, a cannery, a church, buildings of various kinds and all degrees of comfort for the thirty or forty families who made the place their headquarters, and the handsome white two-story big house, standing among lemon trees and flamboyants on the river brink. There were all kinds of pets around the house. The most fascinating was a wee spotted fawn which loved being petted. Half a dozen curassows of different species strolled through the rooms. There were also parrots of several different species, and immediately outside the house four or five herons with unclipped wings, which would let us come within a few feet and then fly gracefully off, shortly afterward returning to the same spot. They included big and little white egrets, and also the mauve and pearl-colored heron, with a partially black head and many-colored bill, which flies with quick, repeated wing-flappings instead of the usual slow heron wing-beats. In the warehouse were scores of skins of jaguar, puma, ocelot, and jaguarundi, and one skin of the big small-toothed red wolf. These were all brought in by the cowhands and by friendly Indians, a price being put on each as they destroyed the stock. The jaguars occasionally killed horses and full-grown cows, but not bulls. The pumas killed the calves. The others killed an occasional very young calf, but ordinarily only sheep, little pigs, and chickens. There was one black jaguar skin. Melanism is much more common among jaguars than pumas, although once Miller saw a black puma that had been killed by Indians. The patterns of the jaguar skins, and even more of the ocelot skins, showed wide variation, no two being alike. The pumas were for the most part bright red, but some were reddish-gray. There being much the same dichromatism that I found among their Colorado kinsfolk. The jaguarundis were dark brownish-gray. All these animals, the spotted jaguars and ocelots, the monochrome black jaguars, red pumas and dark gray jaguarundis, were killed in the same locality with the same environment. 
A glance at the skins and a moment's serious thought would have been enough to show any sincere thinker that in these cats the coloration pattern, whether concealing or revealing, is of no consequence one way or the other as a survival factor. The spotted patterns conferred no benefit as compared with the nearly or quite monochrome blacks, reds, and dark grays. The bodily condition of the various beasts was equally good, showing that their success in life, that is, their ability to catch their prey, was unaffected by their several color schemes. Except white, there is no color so conspicuously advertising as black, yet the black jaguar had been a fine, well-fed, powerful beast. The spotted patterns in the forests, and perhaps even in the marshes, which the jaguars so frequently traversed, are probably a shade less conspicuous than the monochrome red and gray, but the puma and jaguarundry are just as hard to see and evidently find it just as easy to catch prey as the jaguar and ocelot. The little fawn which we saw was spotted. The grown deer had lost the spots. If the spots do really help to conceal the wearer, it is evident that the deer has found the original concealing coloration of so little value that it has actually been lost in the course of the development of the species. When these big cats and the deer are considered together with the dogs, tapers, peccaries, capybaras, and big anteaters, which live in the same environment, and when we also consider the difference between the young and the adult deer and tapirs, both of which, when adult, have substituted a complete or partial monochrome for the ancestral spots and streaks, it is evident that in the present life and in the ancestral development of the big mammals of South America, coloration is not and has not been a survival factor. Any pattern and any color may accompany the persistence and development of the qualities and attributes which are survival factors. Indeed, it seems hard to believe that in their ordinary environment such color schemes as the bright red of the marsh deer, the black of the black jaguar, and the black with white stripes of the great tamandua are not positive detriments to the wearers. Yet such is evidently not the case. Evidently the other factors in species survival are of such overwhelming importance that the coloration becomes negligible from this standpoint, whether it be concealing or revealing. The cats mold themselves to the ground as they crouch or crawl. They take advantage of the tiniest scrap of cover. They move with extraordinary stealth and patience. The other animals which try to sneak off in such manner as to escape observation approach more or less closely to the ideal which the cats most nearly realize. Wariness, sharp senses, the habit of being rigidly motionless when there is the least suspicion of danger, and ability to take advantage of cover, all count. On the bare, open, treeless plain, whether marsh, meadow, or upland, anything above the level of the grass is seen at once. A marsh deer out in the open makes no effort to avoid observation. Its concern is purely to see its foes in time to leave a dangerous neighborhood. The deer of the neighboring forest skulk and hide and lie still in dense cover to avoid being seen. The white-lipped peccaries make no effort to escape observation by being either noiseless or motionless. They trust for defense to their gregariousness and truculence. The collared peccary also trusts to its truculence, but seeks refuge in a hole where it can face any opponent with its formidable biting apparatus. As for the giant tamandua, in spite of its fighting prowess, I am wholly unable to understand how such a slow and clumsy beast has been able 
through the ages to exist and thrive surrounded by jaguars and pumas. Speaking generally, the animals that seek to escape observation trust primarily to smell to discover their foes or their prey, and see whatever moves, and do not see whatever is motionless. By the morning of January 5th we had left the marsh region. There were low hills here and there, and the land was covered with dense forest. From time to time we passed little clearings with palm-thatched houses. We were approaching Caceres, where the easiest part of our trip would end. We had lived in much comfort on the little steamer. The food was plentiful and the cooking good. At night we slept on deck in cots or hammocks. The mosquitoes were rarely troublesome, although in the daytime we were sometimes bothered by numbers of biting horseflies. The bird life was wonderful. One of the characteristic sights we were always seeing was that of a number of heads and necks of cormorants and snake birds, without any bodies, projecting above water and disappearing as the steamer approached. Skimmers and thick-billed tern were plentiful here, right in the heart of the continent. In addition to the spurred lapwing, characteristic and most interesting resident of most of South America, we found tiny red-legged plover, which also breed and are at home in the tropics. The contrasts in habits between closely allied species are wonderful. Among the plovers and bay snipe there are species that live all the year round in almost the same places, in tropical and subtropical lands, and other related forms which wander over the whole earth and spend nearly all their time now in the arctic and cold temperate regions of the far north, now in the cold temperate regions of the south. These latter wide-wandering birds of the seashore and the river bank pass most of their lives in regions of almost perpetual sunlight. They spend the breeding season, the northern summer, in the land of the midnight sun during the long arctic day. They then fly for endless distances down across the north temperate zone, across the equator, through the lands where the days and nights are always of equal length, into another hemisphere and spend another summer of long days and long twilights in the far south where the antarctic winds cool them while their nesting home at the other end of the world is shrouded beneath the iron desolation of the polar night in the late afternoon of the fifth we reached the quaint old-fashioned little town of sao luis de caceres on the outermost fringe of the settled region of the state of Mato grosso the last town we should see before reaching the villages of the Amazon. As we approached, we passed half-clad black washerwomen on the river's edge. The men, with the local band, were gathered at the steeply sloping foot of the main street where the steamer came to her moorings. Groups of women and girls, white and brown, watched us from the low bluff. Their skirts and bodices were red, blue, green, of all colors. Sig had gone ahead with much of the baggage. He met us in an improvised motorboat consisting of a dugout to the side of which he had clamped our Evinrude motor. He was giving several of the local citizens of prominence a ride to their huge enjoyment. The streets of the little town were unpaved, with narrow brick sidewalks. The one-story houses were white or blue, with roofs of red tiles and window shutters of latticed woodwork, come down from colonial days and tracing back through Christian and Moorish Portugal, to a remote Arab ancestry. Pretty faces, some dark, some light, looked out from these windows. Their mothers' mothers for generations past must have thus looked out of similar windows in the vanished colonial days. But now, even here in Caceres, 
the spirit of the new brazil is moving a fine new government school has been started and we met its principal an earnest man doing excellent work one of the many teachers who during the last few years have been brought to mato grosso from sao paulo a center of the new educational movement which will do so much for brazil father zom went to spend the night with some french franciscan friars capital fellows i spent the night at the comfortable house of lieutenant lyra a hot weather house with thick walls big doors and an open patio bordered by a gallery lieutenant lyra was to accompany us he was an old companion of colonel rondon's explorations we visited one or two of the stores to make some final purchases and in the evening strolled through the dusky streets and under the trees of the plaza the women and girls sat in groups in the doorways or at the windows and here and there a stringed instrument tinkled in the darkness from caceres onward we were entering the scene of colonel rondon's explorations for some eighteen years he was occupied in exploring and in opening telegraph lines through the eastern or north middle part of the great forest state the wilderness state of the mato grosso the great wilderness or as australians would call it the bush then in nineteen o seven he began to penetrate the unknown region lying to the north and west he was the head of the exploring expeditions sent out by the brazilian government to traverse for the first time this unknown land to map for the first time the courses of the rivers which from the same divide run into the upper portions of the tapajos and the madeira two of the mighty affluents of the amazon and to build telegraph lines across to the madeira where a line of brazilian settlements connected by steamboat lines and a railroad again occurs three times he penetrated into this absolutely unknown indian haunted wilderness being absent for a year or two at a time and suffering every imaginable hardship before he made his way through to the madeira and completed the telegraph line across the officers and men of the brazilian army and the civilian scientists who followed him shared the toil and the credit of the task some of his men died of beriberi some were killed or wounded by the indians he himself almost died of fever again and again his whole party was reduced almost to the last extremity by starvation disease hardship and the over-exhaustion due to wearing fatigues in dealing with the wild naked savages he showed a combination of fearlessness wariness good judgment and resolute patience and kindliness the result was that they ultimately became his firm friends guarded the telegraph lines and helped the few soldiers left at the isolated widely separated little posts he and his assistants explored and mapped for the first time the Juruena and the Gipurana, two important affluents of the Tapajos and the Madeira, respectively. The Tapajos and the Madeira, like the Orinoco and Rio Negro, have been highways of travel for a couple of centuries. The Madeira, as later the Tapajos, was the chief means of ingress, a century and a half ago, to the little Portuguese settlements of this far interior region of Brazil. One of these little towns, named Mato Grosso, being the original capital of the province, it has long been abandoned by the government and practically so by its inhabitants the ruins of palace fortress and church now rising amid the rank tropical luxuriance of the wild forest the mouths of the main affluents of these highway rivers were as a rule well known but in many cases nothing but the mouth was known 
The river itself was not known, and it was placed on the map by guesswork. Colonel Rondon found, for example, that the course of the Gi Piranha was put down on the map two degrees out of its proper place. He, with his party, was the first to find out its sources, the first to traverse its upper course, the first to map its length. He and his assistants performed a similar service for the Jeruena, discovering the sources, discovering and descending some of the branches, and for the first time making a trustworthy map of the main river itself until its junction with the Tapajos. Near the watershed between the Jeruena and the Gui Piranha, he established his farthest station to the westward, named José Bonifacio, after one of the chief Republican patriots of Brazil. A couple of days' march northwestward from this station, he in 1909 came across a part of the stream of a river running northward between the Gui Piranha and the Jeruena. He could only guess where it debouched, believing it to be into the Madeira, although it was possible that it entered the Gui Piranha or the Tapajos. The region through which it flows was unknown, no civilized man having ever penetrated it, and as all conjecture as to what the river was, as to its length, as to its place of entering into some highway river, was mere guesswork. He had entered it on his sketch maps as the Rio da Duvida, the river of doubt. Among the officers of the Brazilian army and the scientific civilians who have accompanied him, there have been not only expert cartographers, photographers, and telegraphists, but astronomers, geologists, botanists, and zoologists. Their reports, published in excellent shape by the Brazilian government, make an invaluable series of volumes, reflecting the highest credit on the explorers and on the government itself. Colonel Rondon's own accounts of his explorations, of the Indian tribes he has visited, and of the beautiful and wonderful things he has seen, possess a peculiar interest. End of chapter 4 of Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt Recording by Joel Peebles